0: So go ahead and um, turn to John 15, and we're going to look at chapter 15, verse 1, all the way through chapter 16, verse 4, and uh, calling this abiding in the vine. And uh, we'll read it. I'll read it and then pray, and then we'll we'll, uh, dig into it. John 15, verse 1. This is God's word. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do, because they have not known the Father or me, But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have have gathered tonight to, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be spurred on towards love and good deeds. Though painful, we desire to be pruned, so that we may bear greater fruit towards the goal that is your kingdom. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand the words that you have inspired. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So uh, <laughs> we're continuing our study in, in, in Gospels, John. And if you remember from last time, we're right in the middle of Jesus who is sitting with his disciples and is giving his farewell sermons. He's giving his farewell sermons to this renewed Israel. Um, God. We might call them God's covenanted people that have been reconstituted under His Father-given authority. Like Moses in Deuteronomy, Jesus gives His final commandments, His final exhortations before He goes away, and going away is what's required before the Joshua comes, the Holy Spirit, who's going to come and lead them into the world, this new worldwide promised land. But because of basically the shocking nature of what Jesus had told His disciples, With the events surrounding his departure, he needed to encourage them. He needed to sit with them and encourage them to take heart, to to not fret, do not give themselves over to fear, be rest assured that he's building a house. And this house, of course, is the glorious kingdom that he has established through his substitutionary death and through his victorious resurrection. That's the house he's building. His, His reign, his rule, the God's covenant people in this new heavens and new earth. So it's necessary for Jesus to, to, to go away, not only um, because his departure is crucial to the laying of the foundation of the house, though that's true, but also because the spirit advocate is going to come and he's going to fill the house. He's going to fill the temple that is the people of God, just like God filled the temple in the Old Testament. Now we have a new, new people, the New Testament people, the new temple, and God, the spirit is going to come and fill his people once again. So this establishing of the house, what we call the church, the people of God, if you will, this requires us to abide in the triune God, much like, um, much like the abiding that goes on within the Trinity itself. So we'll explain that momentarily. But Jesus spends a lot of time saying that he's, he's in the Father, and the Father is in the Son, and then he starts saying this language about the Spirit being in us. And there's this connection. There's this connection in the Trinity. There's a connection with us, the house of God. There's this participation of indwelling, if you will. There's this inseparable bond of being, we'll call it, a bond of being that is the very definition of what it means for us to abide in Christ and Christ to abide in us. So we are basically established in this bond, what we call a covenant, and we are set apart and we are marked out by love and obedience. Um, this section and the one before it, a lot of people will avoid, especially if they're of the Arminian persuasion, uh, because it talks about um, you know, God choosing us. He chose us first. And then there's this stuff about, um, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now, they, lo- they love that sort of thing, um, but there's a qualification there. <laughs> we love because he first love us, loved us, 1 John says. So we have to kind of keep those things in place. So we are marked out. The house is marked out. The boundaries of the house is marked out by love and obedience. Things we'll get back to in a minute. So in our passage, though, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's continuing his teaching. And the difference, though, here is that for him, he's going to switch a metaphor. He's going to change the metaphor a little bit. Um, It's a different metaphor, but it's a familiar metaphor. If you were able to catch what Matt was reading there there's, there's a lot of connections to that. <clears throat> so he says here in verse 1, and we're just going to pick apart a few things, that he is the vine, Jesus is the vine, his father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener, if you will. It's interesting later in John, um, the women are there at the tomb and they mistaken Jesus for the gardener because he is a gardener making a new world sort of thing. So there's a lot of connections that we'll get to in a little bit. So Jesus is the vine, picture the image there. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Um, his father though, our father is the vine dresser. So we are attached to Christ by covenant. That's the glue that holds it together. That's the attachment, that's the lifeblood. So covenant is what takes priority, not biology. Um, Romans 11, the, the tree that uh, where Paul says, some branches are broken off. Well, those are biological branches but it's a covenant tree, not a biology tree. That's why Jacob was loved and Esau was hated. Because you can be born into this, children, you can be born into the covenant, which you are, but your task is to love Jesus through the rest of your lives. Um, You can't go it alone. And there's a reason because you're a branch, you're not the vine. So covenant, not biology, that's our message. So when we are brought into this covenant by baptism, that's the sign of the covenant that we give, We are unified with Christ in a real and meaningful way. And we don't just say that. It's a real covenant bond. You you don't just see it, per se. You see it in baptism, but you don't see it each day. And we are now set apart, and we know that being set apart in Christ means that apart from Him, we can do nothing. He says that in verse 5. So those who don't abide in Christ, those who aren't members of the covenant or fulfill their terms and conditions of the covenant they are the ones who don't bear fruit and while well, they do bear fruit but it's not good fruit and they're only good for stoking a fire an image of hell this is judgment that befalls the covenant member who turns from christ is in and condemned to hell so the the central concern for jesus and his uses usage of the metaphor is the fact that abiding in christ and in his abiding in us when that happens Our requests are sanctified. He says, right, in verse 7, right, um, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. (laughs) That's not a a proof text for the name and claim it brigade. That is a proof text for people who are praying righteous things. God does righteous things. So we are sanctified and set apart, and he does that. Now, the key here is that in order to basically to prove your discipleship, in order for you to be proven to be a member of this vine, you have to bear fruit. Now, note that we don't bear fruit and then we're called covenant members. We don't have fruit to give to God. And, and then he calls us disciples. We are disciples. We have been cleansed, he says. We, we've been cleansed already because of his word. He cleans us. We are part of his family. We're part of his house. We're part of his vine. And then you bear fruit. The order is there on purpose. So true abiding, true abiding means that the one seeking to abide knows that there's more left to be accomplished. And I'm going to say it a different way. The sanctified person knows that there's always more sanctification to be had. It's the idea of, it's the same thing you could say with humility. Just like the humble person knows that he's not always humble. You know, we don't give plaques out for most humble person um, <laughs> that's a contradiction. So it's the same thing for those of us who are trying to abide. We're abiding in Christ, and we know there's always more to, to be done. We, all, we know that there's always more righteousness to be cultivated. There's always more um, sanctification in our life. There's always more uh, times when we need to correct our minds, to correct our thinking, to, to get us back to the vine himself. So the house Jesus built he likens to a vine. He likens it to a vine. But underneath the metaphors is reality that we are in the Father and the Son. We're in the Father, we're in the Son, and the Spirit is in us. And we are connected to each other. So I'm going to tease this out a bit. The connection that we have with God is a connection that is mimicked in the life of the community. This is a community that's marked by love. Um, So (laughs) We, we, we have in our day, like, churches that want to be, you know, the biggest, baddest, you know, the best, most expensive laser light show, and there's all these things, and we like to call that fruit, because we had 5,000 people show up to our Easter egg helicopter drop, alright, prior experience, and we think that that's fruit, but the fruit is in our obedience to Christ, the fruit is the love of the community, that's not the goal. The goal is never that. The goal for us in terms of our relationship, what we have going on in each other's lives, is our job is to mimic the Trinity. Our job in relationship to each other is to, to mimic and, and um, copy the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our unity in the faith, listen, our unity in the faith together is only as good as our appreciation and diligence of knowing and believing and acting as if we are in actual communion with the Godhead. This is the connection of the vine and the branches. That's why Christianity isn't um, merely a, a set of propositions. It's a creedal faith and we believe that, but it's not only that. It's a real theological connection. So I'm going to say that again because I want us to understand this as a community. Our unity, the unity we have with one another, is only as good as our appreciation and diligence of knowing, believing, and acting as if we are in communion with the Godhead. So in verse 10, you can look there. When we keep Christ's commandments, um, we're told there that we're abiding in Christ's love. So how how do you abide? Well, by by keeping his commandments, his obedience. This is the, this is the train of thought, his obedience and love for the father is the mark of his abiding with the father. Jesus humbled himself. He obeyed the father. He never did his own will over and over again in John's gospel. He's talking about his relationship to the father. And then likewise, our obedience and love for Jesus. You want to prove your obedience to Jesus and your love for Jesus? Well, it's marked in our abiding in him. And our abiding in Him spills over into the community. That's the way it's supposed to work. And all of this is... I don't know about you, but I read... Sometimes You read the Bible and you, you stop and you think, why in the world is it there? Look at verse 11. It says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The point of all of this talk of abiding and staying connected, if you will... All of it is Christ's joy filling up and welling up inside of us. We should be joyful people. That's the mark of abiding, the goal of sanctification. The goal of sanctification isn't so you can check a list off and then commit the sin of pride in thinking you can accomplish this list. That's, that's a cycle of hell. I think probably that's what hell is like. You checked all these things and then you're very proud of what you have done. It's not that, it's joy. It's joy and peace in abiding in Christ in a real and meaningful way. So, <clears throat> let's talk about the vine. The metaphor of the vine isn't something that Jesus just randomly came up with on the spot. Um, the image of the vine is all over the Old Testament. And for those of you who like writing scripture verses down, um, you, can, you can do this. In Hosea 10, 1, Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. In Jeremiah 2.21, Israel is a choice vine of pure seed. So we have Hosea 10.1, Jeremiah 2.21. And according to Psalm 80, which um, Matt read, Israel was a vine that was brought up out of Egypt and planted in the mountains of Israel. They were a vine that had been transplanted from Israel, uh, Egypt to, to Israel. In Ezekiel 19, verse 10. Ezekiel 19 verse 10 Israel is a vine in a vineyard fruitful and full of branches and then of course Isaiah 5 which Matt read again the house of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord Jesus didn't just make this up Jesus understands his Bible he knows his Bible he made sure that it was written (laughs) and yet though through all this Jesus he comes along and he says that now he's the true vine He's the true vine. He's come to the house of Israel. The house of Israel is distraught. It's a mess. So it's, he comes to the vine of Israel. It's a decrepit, it's a disaster, right? It's a decrepit vine. And in other words, he came to his own and his own rejected him, which is what John 1:11 11 tells us. So Israel was ripe, no doubt. They were ripe, but not for harvest of blessing, a harvest of judgment. The gardener had come on the scene. Uh, Jesus is the vine, but he represents the vine dresser. He comes, he was not pleased with the vine of Israel. Um, Jesus comes along as the son, the true Israelite, and he has come to be a renewed vine, a renewed vine to produce real, tangible fruit. So, uh, you know, for us, we are, we are preterists and we like that. We have the badge and everything, <laughs> And we know that when Jesus came, he came to to bring salvation. But part of that salvation is the judgment. We have Christians today that look around the world around us and think that things are just so bad and so bad. Where is God? Well, I'll tell you where he's at. He's behind the turning over of our lust. (laughs) Things are bad because he's involved in bringing judgment. It's not as though God is is distant like the deists. God is in the judgment. God is in, in the process Of bringing this nation and other nations to its knees Um, and that may be a ginormous disaster of sorts I I don't know but clearly that's what he's doing and that's what he did back then Israel apostatized from the covenant they were the dead branches that were broken off for destruction Um, all those branches are gonna be tossed in the fire and what was the fire Jerusalem is destroyed and burning. The temple is wiped out. the rocks have been destroyed. They were under judgment. They had become a degenerate vine. In other words, the axe had already come to the root of this old vine to destroy it, to destroy it and rebuild it in Christ. In fact, if you know your Old Testament prophecy well, um, Jesus is a shoot that comes forth from a stump. That's Isaiah 11:1. So he's the true vine, Jesus is the real vine, the one who pleases the vine dresser, he's the perfect vine, we, we need a perfect vine, and he produces real fruit in the world. world. Now, in order to, to um, produce this real fruit, Jesus has to be perfect, and he is. We just read the Chalcedonian definition, there's a lot of that in there. He is the perfect vine, and he has the actual power to support the branches, in a way that no mere covenant man could ever do. Jesus is the covenant man, par excellence, and his power through the Spirit has been given to his branches. In other words, the, the, you think of, I'm not a, a botanist, um, so I'm not an expert in plantology, um, but there is a, a connection that a branch has with a tree, right? A branch has with a vine. And what's coursing through the veins of the branches metaphorically, is the Holy Spirit in us. So if I could just summarize this whole passage, here's what I would say in, in just a sentence. The life of Jesus himself is reproduced in the lives of his disciple branches. That's the goal. And that's done in the context of a world which hates the vine. So he brings up the world and how we're hated. So the, the difference is, though, the true fruit gives evidence that we're in the vine. That's the evidence part, right? And Jesus tells us in verses 12 through 17 that that fruit is love. We're commanded to love. We need to leave here tonight knowing that we are commanded to love one another in a manner consistent with the love of Christ. That's verse 12. No greater love, he says. This is a popular verse. No greater love does a man have than someone who lays down his life for his friends. Verse 13. They're not slaves, right? We are not orphans. We all have a home now in Christ, and we are not slaves. We are friends, he says. We are friends of Jesus. And that's because we know what the Master is doing. He told us. And then he says, they didn't choose Jesus, he chose them. So we have been chosen, all of us have been elected, predestined. We have been chosen to go forth and bear fruit in your families, in your day to day life, at your job. Everything is, is all, all of this is now uh, this open opportunity for fruit to be had. So in other words, election and predestination is not time for a vacation. It's time for work. It's time for effort. And the rest of the chapter, he, and into chapter 16, Jesus prepares them for what's to come. Just like Moses had prepared Israel for what's to come. Um, they they're, his branches, and what will life be like when you're at odds with the world? Well, he says in verse 18, they're going to be hated, but it's because the world hates Jesus first. Since we are not of the world, we've been taken out of the context of condemnation. We've been brought into his life. Light. Because of that, we're going to be persecuted. There's an opportunity for suffering. Um, We are pipe-hitting post-mill people, but we have a category for suffering unto glory persecution unto victory. Um, We don't just stop at the persecution. But suffering may happen. And the world, we know, the world ought to come along quietly. We know that. But alas, it will not do so because it hates Christ. More on this in a moment. In verse 21, the world doesn't know Christ because the world doesn't understand the Father or know the Father. And I just want to make a quick sidebar, like a quick exegetical remark. I take the world here to mean the same thing Jesus meant back in chapter seven when things were heating up. And in chapter seven, verse seven, he said this, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. He's actually talking about the deeds of his fellow countrymen. I think it was A.W. Pink. Yeah, it was Pink, not Tozer, who said the Greek word cosmos, world, can actually mean like nine different things. Uh, it could mean the actual planet, earth, dust and dirt and all. It can mean um, unbelievers. And, and it, in this context, I, th- I take it to mean it's the unbelieving Jews, his own, that rejected him. And John 3.16, I take to be a larger thing. So, that, I mean, you have to consider the context, of course. At any rate, <clears throat> so Jesus affirms there's no excuse for their sin. There's no excuse for the sins of the world. They're guilty as charged. There, there's no excuse um, the hatred is, is rooted in their hatred of the Father. And their hatred is, is a fulfillment of Psalm 69. They hated me without a cause. So in light of all this hatred, all, in light of all this hostility, you know, Jesus is not going to the gingerbread house to have a good time. He's going to the cross. All of this hostility, the helper spirit is going to come as the spirit of truth. And we are told that that spirit is going to do something else. Testify. Testify, give witness about Christ. This help from the Spirit Advocate is going to keep us from stumbling. You know how many martyrs were put to the stake in the first few centuries, and the biggest pressure, especially from Rome, was to get them to recant Jesus Christ. It it wasn't you know stop confessing the Trinity or that it was a direct. Um, they, they wanted people to be burned at the stake. Either you recant on Jesus Christ or we will burn you. And many did. Um, Augustine even wrote about some of that. The, the, there were many who did recant. And um, that's a sad day. Um, but they also, many stood firm uh, in the faith. So he's going to keep us from sp- stumbling. The Holy Spirit's job is to keep you from stumbling in your daily walk in your life, in your family, but also, and as we testify to the world, and all of that's because this is a pruning process. We're going to be possibly thrown out of synagogues or churches. <laughs> some of us in this room may have been thrown out of churches in some regard, and sometimes facing death. So they, the world thinks that it's serving God, whatever version of God they want, but the Jews then especially thought the same thing, and all of this is because of hatred. Now, <clears throat> here's the question before us. What does it mean to abide in the vine, and how does one actually do this? Uh So you you should ask that question. I'm helping you ask it. What does it mean to abide, and then how do you actually do this? So to start, we have to start with the Trinity. We have to start with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a community of self-giving love. Okay, When God the Father and the Son and the Spirit decided that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, it wasn't as though the Spirit objected to that plan. This is the divine counsel of God, a community of self-giving love. That's where everything starts. So that's where everything begins because God is immutable and He's unchanging. He's sovereign. He's the ultimate starting point for, for everything. So the Trinity... we. The Trinity is where we get everything, unity and diversity. How do we get individualism and yet collectivism in a perfectly balanced fashion? And this is the balance of the one and the many. And all of that can only be resolved in, in God. He is one. He is many. This is equal ultimacy. So there's a lot of language of the Trinity in these texts, a ton of it. I'm in the Father, and I do what the Father says. And the Father's you know sends the Spirit, and I send the Spirit. You know, that's, a, by the way, a biblical confession. The Father and the Son give us the Spirit, because both are true, and we use different passages to prove that point. But all of this talk of the Trinity is, is important, and, and I think the reason is because this... It's not just where we get our existence, it's how our existence is to be patterned. How can I serve God? Well, what does God do? <laughs> right? How... How do I I obey Christ when I'm struggling with this sin? Well, what does God do? What does Jesus do? How does Jesus act? How does Jesus think? That's the whole task of our job. We are a church. We are a local fellowship. We are an assembly of God's people for his kingdom. So there is unity here. There's unity here. I mean, we're oddballs. I get it. We have some weird theology, right? Weird To us, it's like biblical theology, but to many people, it's strange. But we also have diversity, right? There's unity and diversity. There's both in in our relationships with each other, and that's how it's supposed to be. Which means, though, that there's a balance that we have to strike, and the only way we're ever going to actually strike that balance is by mimicking God. And here's what I mean. The farewell discourse here of Jesus here, speaks a lot, as I said, about the Son and the Father, and we're in, everybody's in everybody's business. We're in each other, and so on. And the reason for this is because Jesus is giving us a paradigm in which we are called to function, okay? We're called to function in this way. Jesus himself, he mimics the Father's love for him, and he's, and he does that in his love for the disciples. And the same is true for us. We are called to mimic Christ's love for us in our love for others. That's abiding. Okay, So abiding is more than piety, although we should be praying a lot. We should be reading our Bibles a lot. We should be studying. We should be um, serving. Those are pious things, and they're good things. But abiding isn't about holding on to Christ, but rather remembering and trusting that Christ holds on to us. So here's the temptation. <laughs> when we make ourselves the vine and Christ is the branch, we mess the whole thing up. Abiding isn't about holding on to Christ. It's about remembering and trusting that Christ holds on to us. So our relationship to God is marked with our relationship with God is marked by love. And thus, our relationship with each other ought to be marked by, you guessed it, love. So for Christians who want to abide in Jesus, we must know that we are to love. That is, we are to give ourselves to each other and one another. And why is that? Well, because this type of obedience is our eagerness to be a good friend to Jesus. you catch catching the train of thought here. Our obedience in our love for one another is us attempting to be a good friend to Jesus. <coughs> so when we love one another, um, using the terms and conditions that Jesus exemplified for us, we are being a good friend to Jesus. Why do, you, why do you think when Saul was ravaging the church, the ESV says, why is it when Jesus knocked him off his high horse, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a fascinating Bible study in Acts 6, 7, 8 in there. Like, you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. That's the issue. And you should know, Jesus isn't our chummy friend that we elbow softly, right? Winking at him in hopes that he's just going to overlook our respectable sins and sweep it under the rug. That's not the friendship we're talking about. Friendship with, o- G- with Jesus is obedience to Jesus. He is our Lord, absolutely, no doubt. But he's the kind of Lord that walks with you every day and not the kind of Lord that sits up on his elevated taskmaster throne shouting at you, demanding that you work harder because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. He's our friend. He's our friend. So love marks the relationship of the triune Godhead, and love is supposed to mark our relationship with each other. So this, the, the, the type of love that Jesus wants us to have is not what amounts to gooey puddle, a gooey puddle, where we have this fakery. That's not it. Love, the love Christ, the love Christ wants us to have and, and to exhibit in each other's lives has a backbone. It's fearless. It's bold. It's courageous. It's unstoppable. That's true love. It's, it's not the ushy gushi stuff. It's the willingness to, for us to be honest with each other, to trust one another, to build trust with each other, to, to, to be kind to one another, to, to actually perform the one another's of Scripture. But the problem comes in, however, in our relationship with the world as well. The relationship we have with those who hate Christ is marked by hatred. It's on their end. It doesn't, Chris, Saturday, you're gonna go there for five minutes and it will be volatile. It's a hornet's nest. And that's the characteristics of the world. Why? Because it hates Christ. And it hates Christ first, and then it'll hate you. So, Jesus teaches us that the Spirit has a role to play in our lives, to witness, to testify, not just to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, though that's true. And we live in Him, He lives in us. We are to do the same, which means that we have to be grounded in Christ's love or else we will not withstand the hatred of the world. The world, in, in this case, again, the religious leaders, you know, they, they didn't know what to do with Christ, so they killed Him. They didn't want to turn to him. They didn't want to let him get off scot-free. They didn't. They would rather have um, Bar- Barsabbas right, be free, and then crucify Jesus, an innocent man. They didn't know what they were doing. Paul says in, to the Corinthians that they would, if they knew, they wouldn't have done it. But if they did it to him, why should we expect anything less? And here, here's the truth of the matter: we are. <laughs> We are preaching to ears that cannot hear, eyes that cannot see, and minds which cannot really comprehend. So the question is, are you up for the task? Are you really up for the task? Because the terms love and hatred, which show up several times in this passage, have both been hijacked by the humanists who do not understand either words. love means intolerably crying for tolerance and hatred means that we're winning the argument and because the god-hating unbeliever refuses to bow to christ the only thing that can be done is a redefining of the world and all definitions no uterus no opinion but if you don't have a uterus you can have a baby (laughs) schizophrenic Right? I mean, this, that's redefinitions. So we have to define love here, knowing full well that we are in a world that needs that love and needs that service. So we must ask, what is it about Jesus that the world hates? The answer is quite simple. The world hates the world. Unbelievers in enmity with God define their whole existence on self-assertion and a conscious rejection of any supreme authority that is in itself. I'll say that again. The world that is unbelievers at enmity with God, they define their whole existence on self-assertion and a rejection of any supreme authority that is in itself. And here is Jesus Christ, who has the audacity to preach about self-denial and salvation that's found exclusively in Him. <laughs> he's the way to the Father, but man thinks He's the way. This is the sin of Adam, which means that if we intend to win the hearts of men, winning the battle for the minds of men, we have to abide. And let me close with just these two couple of things. True, true abiding means trusting that each step of the way, each moment, each moment in interaction and in circumstance of every single day of your life, you are being tended to and cared for by the Father in the Son. He knows what to, pr- to, to prune, and perhaps more pertinent, when to prune. See, the, the fruit Christ desires to produce in us is not unknown to Him. He is doing this daily. He is doing this hourly your season of life, I'm preaching to myself, your season of life is a pruning session that he desires to do in you. And when can we expect, think about this, when can we expect the vine dresser, the gardener, to be most attentive to us? And the pruning. The gardener is never closer to you working in your life to produce long-term fruit and health than when he is surgically using a knife to remove all the stuff in your life that you don't need. That's when he's closest to you, which is to say the the purpose of our lives, the goal for which we were created is to be productive for the kingdom of God, laboring and pruning and trimming not only ourselves, but our corner of the garden world so that it looks like the kingdom of God your family included. So when we abide, we can withstand. When we abide, we can labor and be productive, which is to say when we abide, we can conquer the world. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you tonight. We glorify you in in our words and our love. God, you have shown us exactly the pattern of love and service that we need to be able to mimic. And I just pray that you would help us. God, I pray for our kids here. God, that you would teach them that, that they would see that abiding in you is where true happiness is found, true joy, and the power that we need for for our lives. So God, we glorify you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.